The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this uh, story of the first Pentecost, the gift of your spirit. We pray now in these few moments as we gather here together, that you might speak to us of its wisdom for our living today. Help us to understand how the gift of your spirit empowers us to speak in many languages. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. From the very beginning of time, God has loved the world, and, and the story of the Hebrew people that we find in what we call the Old Testament uh, provides a, a, a story 
of that love. And it provides a, a sort of metaphor for how God's love continues to interact with us today. What we learn from the pages of the Old Testament is that from the very beginning, God breathed into the inanimate earth, the breath of life, gave us life. In other words, life itself comes from God. And according to Genesis, uh, the first beings were put into a, into a garden. And, and are we not living in a garden today, a, a veritable paradise? You can't go anywhere, not even in the desert, without seeing that this planet Earth is teeming with life. And so it is, God continues to create and continues to offer us those kinds of blessings. But just as those early creatures of God turned away from God, and and the Old Testament is full of examples where God's people constantly turned away from God and kind of forgot uh, who was the source of all their blessings, in the same way we do the same thing today. And we, we almost forget that God even exists. And just as God forgave the people over and over again, God continues to forgive us as well. In the Old Testament, we learn of how God protects God's people. God protects us as well, sometimes from ourselves. And just as God gave the Hebrews in the wilderness uh, a roadmap for the future, the Ten Commandments and the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, in the same way, we are given a roadmap as well, especially as we consider the life of Jesus and his teachings. We are pointed to a promised land just as the Hebrews were pointed to a promised land so long ago. We're pointed to a world that's better than what it is today. You see, the Bible is the story of God's love affair with the world. And this story needs storytellers for for others to hear it, for for people to understand what that story means, to, to understand how and why God loves us. Now, the Hebrew people to this very day celebrate three major festivals that allow them to sort of... Um, remember that story of God's love for the world. The first, of course, is is Passover. Passover is a time for the Hebrews to, to recall how their people were in bondage in Egypt and how God uh, freed them from their bondage and pointed them to, to a promised land. It took them a, a while to get there, and it, and it took a lot of, uh, a lot of cajoling, uh, a lot of leadership as well. Passover is a time to remember the gift of salvation, the gift of freedom, the gift of God's love. The second festival that Hebrews celebrate is what what we call Pentecost, what we as Christians call Pentecost, but it was actually in Hebrews called Shavuot. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but 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 it's it that is the festival that the early Christians had come to Jerusalem to. Um, to experience. In fact, they weren't called Christians then, uh, and they had come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and to and to celebrate this Shavuot. It it is uh, 50 days after Passover for the Hebrews. For Christians, we call it Pentecost because it means 50. That's the Greek word, and it's 50 days after Easter for us. 
It's the gift of the Torah that is celebrated then. The Torah, which literally means teachings. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's the the holiest section of what we call the Old Testament. And and so during this this festival, this festival of Shavuot, which is also known as the Feast of Weeks, and you can see why. Seven times seven, seven weeks of weeks. Uh, that gives you 49, and then one more day gives you 50. It's a time to celebrate the gift of this roadmap that God had provided God's people. And then finally, the third festival is Sukkoth, which is akin to our Thanksgiving. It's it's a time in the fall. It's a it's a in fact, it was called the Feast of of booths because it was the time of harvest and as the Hebrews would go out into the field and and gather in the crops they would build the these booths and they would in essence have parties they would celebrate uh, the wonderful blessings of God it's the gift of of food a gift of the harvest if you will so you see, these three festivals are a way to tell the story of God's love. It, it allows storytellers to, to repeat uh, the ways in which God loves the world. We as Christians believe God's love is best exemplified and summarized in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. How much does God love us, we might ask? Well, just look at Jesus. Look at him on the cross. And if if you want to... If you want to uh, hear the story, then listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to his parables and his teachings. For us as Christians, you see, uh, Jesus is the, is the epitome of, of telling the story of God's love. Well, God needs storytellers to continue that story being told to many generations to come. That's why Jesus told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem. We talked about this last week about being witnesses. People are watching us. And, and so as he ascended back to his heavenly father, he calls on his, his followers, his disciples, to, to stay in Jerusalem so that the Holy Spirit would be sent upon them, so they would have the power to become the storytellers that they were being called to be. In a, in a way, you might say he was afraid that if they just kind of dispersed right then that maybe they would forget. Maybe they would forget the story or maybe they would hide behind closed doors and just tell the story to themselves and not want to share it uh, with the world beyond their walls. He knew that the Holy Spirit would come as power to give them the ability to share that story. And so he tells them to wait in Jerusalem and then the Holy Spirit has come, comes to them. And I don't think it's any accident that the Spirit comes as tongues of fire. I mean, why didn't the Spirit come as a dove like it did with Jesus at his baptism? Well, a dove would have been nice. No, it comes as, uh, as, as tongues of fire. And, the, and the, the people there, the Galileans, they started speaking in these, these strange languages. And other people who were there, they, they understood what was being said. You see, God wants everyone to hear the story of God's love. So God was giving his storytellers the ability to, to share that story in, in other languages. Now, the technical term for speaking in tongues is, is glossolalia. It uh, may be more accurately um, 
described or, or identified as ecstatic speech. Now, even to this day, it's common among Pentecostals and some evangelical uh, denominations still practice speaking in tongues. It's no longer a, a kind of a tradition or an experience among most United Methodists, but even among United Methodists, there are those who speak in tongues. Many believe it to be the, the language of the Spirit. And so, you know, there, there's a good possibility that on that first Pentecost, it's not like they all of a sudden started speaking French or, or Latin or some other language, but yet whatever they were speaking, it was an ecstatic speech that was understood by those who were there, much as we might understand the, the whimper of a child or a tear. Uh, we, we might hear in certain music a language without actually having the word spoken. Even though it's not a common practice today among most United Methodists, uh, we have to remember that if we go back to our early days of Methodism in England, uh, Methodists were known as shouting Methodists. And, and in fact, uh, many people who, who condemned the Methodists condemned them for their enthusiasm. No. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> and, and I doubt... I doubt that many of our United Methodists today could uh, be convicted of too much enthusiasm. Now, speaking in tongues is mentioned three times in the book of Acts, of course, in our lesson today at Pentecost. Also, though, when Cornelius is converted, remember how Peter had this vision uh, of God to go uh, to Cornelius's house, a Roman centurion. That was the last place that Peter wanted to go, and he certainly didn't think Gentiles were... were uh, people that ought to, to have the gospel preached to them. But because of his vision of this, this sheet that was being lowered down from heaven that was, being, that was filled with all kinds of so-called unclean animals, God says, don't, don't call anything that I've created unclean, and then sends Peter to Cornelius. When he goes there, not only does Cornelius uh, become a convert to Christianity, but his whole family is converted, and they began speaking in tongues. They started hearing the story of God's love for the world in, in a rich and personal way. And so they wanted to be a part of that story. They wanted, they wanted to share that story themselves. And then finally, the third place in the book of Acts where, where um, speaking in tongues is mentioned is uh, with Apollos in Ephesus. His followers are claimed to be uh, speakers in tongues. And, and maybe it's also because of that that, you know, Paul and Apollos had, had some differing opinions about leadership. And so there was a little bit of struggle in the early church. And maybe that's why uh, Paul ends up writing about speaking in tongues a little bit later uh, in some of his epistles. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Paul speaks at length about tongues. He, he, he says that he can do it. He can speak in tongues. Um, but it's not for his benefit, it's for the benefit of other people. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. In other words, he's saying it's a wonderful gift to have. It's wonderful to be able to speak in this ecstatic speech, but if people don't understand it, then, then I don't want to use it. Because the ultimate purpose is to share this story, the story of God's love. And if people don't understand it, then, then I've got to find another way to speak to them, use my mind if necessary. 
In other words, the gift of tongues is meant to help God's storytellers tell the story of God's love for others. Well, you and I speak in tongues, whether or not you want to believe it. We, we may not speak in ecstatic speech as these early followers of Jesus or as Pentecostals of today do, but we all speak in different languages. Now, I, you know, I studied uh, English in school. I also studied German and French and Latin and Greek, and I don't think I'm fluent in any of those languages because, you see, I speak Southern <laughs> which is uh, its own language. There's nothing more important than for us to be able to speak a word or two, if, if, if nothing more than that, in someone else's language. It, it lets them feel like they're, they're part of us. They're, there's a connection point. And that's why it's important for us to know different ways to speak to people. And, you know, we're not just bilingual. We're not, if we do know an, another language, it just, we're not just bilingual. We're all, every one of us are multilingual. We speak, for instance, the language of electronics today. Some of us use texting, uh, others Facebook, or we, uh, we can communicate sometimes by passing on something we found on YouTube. We use Skype. We Skype with our Lithuanian partner church. Some use Instagram and Twitter. And uh, I know for a lot of younger people that they're less inclined to use email. It's becoming kind of a, you know, an ancient language. Uh, I think the phone is, is an ancient instrument to my son as far as talking, you know, voice to voice. I can sit in the same room and have to text him to talk to him. Letter writing has become almost as ancient as, as uh, you know, cave painting. Um, but there are different ways, you see, that we communicate. And some speak the language of youth, and others speak the language of age. And sometimes when you get two generations together, they can't even, they don't, they can't communicate because they're, they're, they're speaking different languages. <coughs> Excuse me. We also speak the language of life experiences. Someone who has experienced the death of a loved one, or if they're going through grief, they can speak to another person who is in the same place in a way that others cannot. Someone who has experienced tragedy or, or if they're living with depression, that, that can cause one to, to be able to speak in a way that the person who is going through that, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> they too can understand and there's a communication link. Those who have lived with, thank you, Phil, those who have lived with addiction can speak to others who are struggling with addiction in a way that others who have not cannot. If you have been abused, you can communicate to someone who is in the throes of abuse in a way that others cannot. I'm convinced that uh, military veterans have their own, their own language, especially Marines, and we know a few in our midst. <laughs> we all speak a body language. 
want to share two quick stories with you from my experience at Duke. <coughs> and you've heard these stories before, but I, I need to tell them again because it's the last time that you'll get to hear them from me. <coughs> but when I went to Duke, um, I was a resident advisor in, uh, in the undergraduate dorms. And, and I remember my early days there, I was going across campus and I was passing by one of these strange things that you may not know what it is. It's called a phone booth. Um, and it was ringing. As I passed by, it started ringing. And, and I first was inclined to just pass by and then I thought, well, maybe I should go back. So I went back and I, and I answered the phone and it sounded like a little girl on the other end. And she was scared. She said, I'm, I'm scared, I'm scared. I said, who are you? What, what's your name? Uh, is there someone, is there an adult there? Do you, is your mom there? Can I speak to someone? And, but she kept saying, I'm so scared, I'm so scared. And then she started saying, you won't leave me, will you? You won't leave me. I said, no, no, I won't leave you. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. Could you tell me your name? Could you tell me where you live? You won't leave me, will you? Well, after a while, she finally said, you know, I'm feeling better now. I think I'll be okay. I'm, I'm going to hang up now. I say, well, no, tell me who you are. Where are you? And then she hung up. I didn't think too much more about it other than to feel like, well, maybe, maybe I was there just the right time in just the right place. <clears throat> well, later, I, maybe a year or so later, I, I, uh, I went into a chaplaincy program at, at Duke um, as part of my training. And I got to know a young lady by the name of Rena Lewis, who became a Presbyterian pastor. And uh, she had cerebral palsy. And so she would often have to use uh, crutches. Uh, she had braces on her legs. And she would also, from time to time, have seizures. And I remember the first time she had a seizure. And, and she taught me later not to worry about trying to do anything to her, just make sure that she's not going to injure herself. But I remember how she fell to the ground and her voice started changing. And she started saying, I'm so scared, I'm so scared. And then she said, you won't leave me, will you? You won't leave me. It was the voice of that, what I thought was a little girl on the telephone sometime before. It was Rena Lewis, I know it. Well, she came to and she taught me something else. When I asked her, what do you want me to do when this happens? I feel so helpless. She said, you know what you can do? You can get on the ground with me. Because she said, you know, every time I wake from a seizure, everybody is up there and I'm all alone on the ground. So for the rest of my career at Duke, we would be crossing campus and we'd both end up on the ground so that she wouldn't be alone when she would wake up. She taught me that. It was nothing I could say with my mouth, but it was something I could say with my body. I could just be with her. The other story is this, that uh, I had a good friend who was married, and they had a little, little son named Kirk, and we all decided to go to Carowinds, which is an amusement park down near Charlotte. And we went there, and there was this big roller coaster that went upside down that John and Norma Jean wanted to get on. And I said, well, let me take care of Kirk. I know he can't go on that. I'll, I'll sacrifice myself to watch your little boy. So they said, great. So they went, went there, and we were 
across the lake, and there was kind of a split rail fence, and we were just kind of, I leaned on the top one, and Kirk leaned on the lower rung, and we watched the people as they got on the roller coaster, and all of a sudden, I turned, and I saw, by the way, Kirk, little white boy with bleach blonde hair, and I looked off to the side, and there was a little black boy that was just standing there looking at Kirk with the biggest smile on his face. He was just, he was just wonderful. And I said, Kirk, Kirk, I think you've got a friend there. And Kirk turned and looked at him. And as soon as their eyes met each other, Kirk's face just lit up. And he ran over to them and and they got face to face. I mean, nose to nose. I couldn't put my finger between their nose. They're just looking at each other, smiling. And then all of a sudden, not a word was spoken. Nobody prompted them. They started running in a circle and one chased the other. And without words being spoken, all of a sudden they stopped and they turned around and the other one chased the other. And they went, they did this for what seemed like hours. I stood there just marveling at what what I was watching. I looked around, nobody else was watching, so I just stood there. It was delightful. Well, the time came that apparently, I guess it may have been his parents or some relatives, uh, some adults standing near, they called to their son, the the African-American boy, and said, come on, we got to go now, and just kind of calling from the peripheral vision, not really watching what was going on. And so the, the two boys, they stopped. And again, nose to nose, they looked at each other with these great big smiles. And then without a word, the little black boy took the little white boy's face in his hands and he kissed him. And then they parted. And I was speechless. I felt like I had just watched angels and I looked, I wanted, I wanted a camera, I wanted something to, to record this incident. And here it was, this is in the 70s in North Carolina. Two little boys were speaking volumes about God's love, not only for us, but how we should share that love with one another. You see, we, we speak with more than our words Sometimes our, our, our best language are the words that we speak with our, with our lives, with, with our bodies. You see, we are Christ's hands and his feet. God speaks in many, many languages. Let us pray. Lord, give us your spirit so that we might indeed become your storytellers to tell of your great love for the world. Amen.